Good afternoon, everybody. We'll make a start. Welcome to uh, today's UCL Lunch Hour Lecture. I'm Richard Pearson, and it's my pleasure to very briefly introduce Tim Newbold. Tim is a Senior Research Associate in the Centre for Biodiversity and Environment Research here at UCL. Um, he's been doing some really important work in the last few years, particularly focused on the impact of climate change and land use change on biodiversity and what that means for human societies. Um, Tim did his undergraduate and PhD at Nottingham University and then did, did a five-year postdoc at the World Conservation Monitoring Centre in Cambridge, um, but is now here at UCL and we're very pleased to have him. And I think we're going to focus today on bumblebees. So, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Richard. Um, <coughs> yes, as um, Richard said today, I'm going to talk mostly about the work, some work that we've been doing recently, looking at declines in bumblebees, um, and think a little bit about why that's happening, what, what's causing these declines, and, and why we should be concerned about those declines. So, before I start with the talk, a few thank yous. Um, firstly, to the wonderful colleagues that, that work with me in the Centre for Biodiversity Environment Research here at UCL. Um, also, several funding agencies for providing the money that's made this possible. And also some particular thanks for the, for the bumblebee work that I'll present today, um, principally to the co-authors of the, of the bumblebee work, Jeremy Kerr and, and Peter Sheroy in the University of Ottawa, but also to Andy Purvis at the Natural History Museum um, and Richard uh, and also Henry Ferguson Gow um, here at UCL. And also a big thank you. So you know, literally hundreds of people have contributed various pieces of data that, that have made the sorts of analyses that I'll show possible. Um, so also you know, a big thank you to all of those people um, who have provided data. So I think most people in the room probably are um, familiar with the fact that, that biodiversity is, is in steep decline. And, and you know, of course, one um, thing that, that has been in the news relatively recent, recently, so back in May of last year when the Intergovernmental um, Platform for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services produced its first big report, you know, they estimated, the authors of the report estimated that as many as one million species um, on, on the planet may be threatened with extinction. And the World Economic Forum, um, you know, the meeting that, that, that took place a couple of weeks ago in Davos in Switzerland, um, you know, they, they produce a, a report every year that identifies what they see as being the biggest risks um, that, that are faced by the planet and by human societies. And this year, for the first time, the World Economic Forum identified biodiversity loss as being one of those top five risks that we face um, as, a, as a human society. And we know that you know, biodiversity underpins pretty much all of the natural systems you know, on which we rely as human societies. And also, you know, it also provides a set of more tangible, more direct benefits that are easier to understand. And these are things that we refer to as ecosystem services, things like pollination, cycling of nutrients, um, provision of fuel, 
and also, of course, for our culture and, and recreation, um, which is shown to be important for uh, mental well-being. So it's been estimated that in 2008, when we had the banking crisis, that the cost of that to the world economy was, estimates vary, but, but you know, generally these estimates are putting it somewhere around $498 billion, around half a trillion dollars. Um, so would anyone care to guess at the value of all of those things that, that nature provides to us, ecosystem services? Anyone hazard a guess at what they might be worth? One trillion? Trillions, yes, trillions. <laughs> so they're thought, thought to be some, worth something in the region of 33 trillion dollars every year. Um, and, and for various reasons, this is probably quite a big underestimate. Um, you know, there are lots of things that we don't know about um, that, that biodiversity probably does for us and we just don't even know it. And then just, you know, focusing in on one specific example, which will become relevant later, you know, pollination alone is thought to be worth something like 230 to 410 billion dollars every year. So I guess that brings us on to bumblebees. And I'm just going to do a little experiment. Um, so just by a show of hands, who here you know, already thinks bumblebees are great? OK, so that's pretty overwhelming. Does anyone think they're just a nuisance in the garden in the summer? No one's brave enough to vote for that option. Well, I've got a converted audience. Um, that's nice. <laughs> So the second part of the experiment, which I don't think we need anymore, because you're already convinced, which is great. The second part of the experiment was to say, you know, who, who likes one of the foods that are shown on this slide here? I'm predicting that will be pretty much everybody. Oh, no one's showing their hands. <laughs> um, so all of, these, all of these food types, you know, particularly things like nuts, fruits, um, squashes and melons, that kind of thing, they all... Bumblebees play an important role in pollinating all of these crops. So if you weren't convinced already, hopefully, um, you are now that, that bumblebees are very important. They're not, so they're not pollinating crops that give us a lot of our calories, but they are pollinating crops that give us a lot of variety in our diet. So those are the nice things that we like to eat. And it's also known that insects and, and bumblebees among them are also in steep, decline. So also over the past couple of years, you've probably been aware of um, pieces of news coming out about, about insect declines. There's been a lot of research over the past few years showing very, very steep declines in, in insect populations. Um, and so, yeah, my, my research really is about trying to under, understand declines of biodiversity, including of insects. Um, and mostly I've been doing this through you know, trying to, to gather together the best data that we have from as many different parts of the world, um, building computer models and analyses that try and understand these, the changes that we're seeing and understand what's driving them, and then to use these, these computer models to, to make predictions about what might happen in the future, um, depending on how we continue from here. And today, you know, I'm going to focus on, on some work that we've been doing on, 
on bumblebees and, and particularly focusing on what's been happening in uh, Europe. One thing that we're very lucky in Europe is that people have been collecting data for a long time. Um, so this animation here is showing um, places where people have recorded bumblebees over the past 115 um, years. Um, and you know, what you can see is that there are changes over time in where people are recording, but you know, we've got quite a, lot of, quite a lot of data that we can use to try and understand what's, what's going on. Um, and, and so you know, what we've been doing recently, together with the collaborators that I mentioned in Ottawa, is to try and you know, look at, at the changes in where bumblebees are found and to try and understand what's, what's driving those changes. And so we had a paper actually that came out at the end of last week um, where we looked at changes across this 115 years um, for which we have pretty good data in Europe. And what we found is that um, across Europe um, between um, 1900 and, and, and the present day um, that bumblebees have declined by around 20% across Europe. Actually, what we found in the same paper is that declines have been much larger in North America, um, and we're still not sure exactly what's driving the differences, but, but declines across both continents, um, and declines of around 20% across Europe, which is a pretty, it's a pretty large um, decline. But I think you know, what, what's most interesting to us in, um, in understanding these declines is, is, is trying to work out what's driving it. Um, and then to think about what this might mean um, when we start to think about the future. So, of course, you know, during those 115 years, um, we've seen some pretty big changes in climate in Europe. So the video on the left here is showing changes in average temperatures um, across Europe, across the 115 years. What you see, of course, is that, that it changes a lot year on year. But as you get towards the more recent years, then you start to see a lot more red. And this is shown really nicely with these sorts of visualizations that have been produced by Ed Hawkins at the University of Reading. Um, this is shown here for France, which is in the middle of our um, study area of Europe, um, where from left to right, you've got years becoming more recent. And the red colors indicate hotter years, and the blue colors cooler years. And of course, what you can see very clearly here um, is that the most recent years have all been, on average, much hotter um, than earlier years. And something that we're interested when trying to understand changes in biodiversity is not only these sorts of changes in, in average temperatures, but perhaps more importantly, changes in extremes of temperature and extremes of, of climate, because these are really important for animals and plants. So just to give a couple of examples, and you probably remember in 2018, um, the UK suffered one of the worst droughts that it's seen um, for many years. Um, and it was so dry even that you, know, you could see the browning of the land um, in satellite images. And of course, right now, we're in, experiencing an extreme um, weather event right in the middle of Storm Kira. And we're interested in these things because they can be very, extremes of climate can be very important in, in determining what happens to animals and plants. So in this work that we had that came out last week, as well as 
documenting the declines that we've seen in, in bumblebees across Europe and also North America. We also looked at um, whether climate, and, and particularly whether extremes of climate, might be explaining the changes that we've seen. And so what we find if we, um, if we do this is that climate change alone can help us to explain around 10% of the patterns that we see um, in changes in bumblebees over time. And this is pretty good for a, um, a study of ecology. You know, natural systems are very complicated. What the, the, the ways that animals and plants change and, and um, uh, where we find them is determined by a great many things. And so as ecologists, we're normally pretty pleased if we see something like this. You know, if we're able to explain 10% of what's going on, that's pretty good. Um, and if we isolate those effects of, of climate change and we predict what effect those alone have had on, on bumblebees, we predict that they've been responsible for around 8% um, decline in bumblebees across, um, across Europe. But of course, climate change isn't the only thing that, that has been happening. Um, so also over the past centuries, we have um, drastically changed the way that we use the land. Um, and so what you see, so um, more orange and red areas are here, are areas with a lot of um, farming and cities. And so what you see, of course, over the past few hundred years is, is that we've used more and more of our land for growing food um, and for cities to live. And we know when we look at biodiversity that typically we get less biodiversity in farmland. Actually, for bumblebees, the, the picture is more mixed. So well-managed farmland can actually be relatively good for bumblebees. Um, but if we manage it intensively, if we, if we apply a lot of chemicals and pesticides and things, then we know it's much worse um, for bumblebees. But what we find if we take this into account, if we add in the effects of, of changes in the way that we use land, that we get slightly better at explaining patterns in changes in bumblebees over the past hundred or so years. And if we isolate just the effects of climate, and, but also changes in land use, then, then these together are predicted to have led to declines of around 9% um, over the 115 years of the study. But what we're really interested in um, is not just how climate change and changes in land use are impacting bumblebees, but particularly the interplay between these two things. And there are, you know, there are various reasons why we think that um, these two big threats to bumblebees might be playing off against one another. So the first is, you know, in, in previous episodes of, of climate change, you know, there have been episodes of rapid climate change um, in, um, uh, in, the, in the history of the Earth. And at that time, you know, species were able to, you know, what, what, what we find with climate change, of course, is that species need to move to cooler areas, so they need to move towards the poles, and they need to move up mountainsides. And when climate change has happened in the past, species have been able to move through natural habitats. 
So that's much easier than what they're faced with today, which is moving through these sorts of landscapes where we've taken away a lot of the natural habitats and put in farmland, which is less good for biodiversity. And so this makes it harder for species to move with climate change. And on top of that is the fact that you know, not, not only is, it, you know, is, is, is farmland generally bad for biodiversity and makes it harder for, for species to move, but also farmlands and also cities, of course, are hotter and drier than natural habitats. So, you know, if you, if you go and walk in a forest and you come out into a bit of farmland, you probably immediately notice a change in the um, climate, in the, in the local climate. Um, so these places are hotter and drier. And so, of course, this adds to the... You know, as, as well as the climate changing globally and across wide areas, you know, you're also getting these sorts of local areas of hot and dry conditions, which for some species are, is a really big problem. And so what we find if we take into account this interplay of climate change and land use is that we become much, much better able to explain what's happened. Um, so that, to explain the patterns that we see in how bumblebees have changed. And we get close to being able to explain around half of the patterns that we see. And that is really high in ecology. You know, I said at the, at, at the start of these results that, you know, if we, if we can explain 10%, we're generally pretty pleased. Being able to explain nearly half is, um, is very surprising. Um, and what we find then if we, if we, include all of this, all of these interplay of factors in the model, is that we get close to predicting that, those 18% declines that we've seen over the past 115 years. And some of the patterns that we can't explain, um, so we've, we've looked at what might be missing, what might be accounting for some of this gray area that we, that we can't explain, and some of that seems to be driven by um, application of chemicals, which we know are bad for bumblebees, and also by some other, so, so some, some effects of extreme temperature that we, we seem not to be able to capture in our models. You know, as I said at the start, one of the goals of, of developing this better understanding of what's happening in the past is to be able to make predictions about what might happen in the future. So, so once we've constructed these these models of how biodiversity is changing, and once we're satisfied that they're capturing some of the main things that are going on, then we can make predictions about what might happen. Um, and so one thing is to say, well, what if we carry on as we are? So what, what we tend to refer to as business as usual. Um, so this is a world where we continue to um, use a lot of fossil fuels for energy, we, so we get rapid climate change, um, we have a growing human population. We need a lot more land for growing our food. So what we find under this, this business-as-usual scenario is that we expect declines in the, in the next 80 years, so up until the end of this century, of nearly 60% um, of bumblebees, which is a, it's a, it's a huge loss. Um, we can also look at you know, what might happen if we do things better. So, you know, in 2015, um, at the climate conference, 
there, an agreement was reached to try and limit global temperatures to at most two degrees, but hopefully one and a half degrees. But even under, because of this interplay of the effects of climate change and also um, land use change, while things are better if we meet the Paris Climate Agreement, we're still looking at nearly doubling the losses that we've seen so far. So going to losses of around 40% on average um, by the end of this century. And of course, the sort of changes that we expect don't fall equally everywhere. Um, so this is the prediction for 2100 under that business as usual scenario. Um, and so what we find is that areas in southern Europe where we expect more extremes of temperature um, and of um, drought that we see very, very large declines, in fact, uh, almost complete or even complete declines in, in some places. And of course, this is important when we think back to, to those foods, to those fruits and those nuts and things that we like eating. Because of course, many of these things, um, many of these foods are grown in these areas of southern Europe where we're expecting to see the very large declines in bumblebees. Um, and these are the crops that we know bumblebees make a very important contribution to pollinating. So hopefully by now I've um, thoroughly depressed you. <laughs> um, and so I guess in the last uh, little bit of the talk then, um, I will go over some of the things that we might do. So you know, one, one of the advantages of, of these sorts of models is that as, you know, they can highlight the problem, they can highlight what's, what's causing the problem, and they can also hopefully give us some solutions um, and, and guide us towards some of the things that we might do to reduce losses. Um, so this is idea that's been, you know, what one of the main things we know is really going to help is if we can reduce the level of, of climate change. You know, bumblebees are particularly sensitive to climate, particularly sensitive to these extremes heat and drought. And so reducing climate change is you know, one of the most important things that we can, that we can do. Um, and there's been this idea knocking around for um, uh, a few years now, this idea of, of climate wedges. So these are sort of a series of, of actions that, that together, if we were to do all of them, could add up to um, help to reduce climate change, the sorts of levels that we need, so something like the, the Paris Agreement at the very least. Um, so things like you know, more efficient transportation, more efficient gen generation of, of energy, um, and, and changes in um, our diets. And we've also recently been thinking about um, whether we might come up with a similar sort of set of biodiversity wedges, as it, as it were. And, and of course, you know, some of these relate to climate change, but we've also been thinking about some of the things that we might need um, in order to reduce land use change. Um, and so this is some work that's been commissioned by the World Wildlife Fund. Um, and, and of course, many of these things are the same sorts of things. So protecting natural habitats, changes in diets, reducing food waste, um, and, and so on. And what we, you know, what we found in some other work is that actually if we were to put together all of these things, we could go a long way towards 
reversing the declines in biodiversity that have been caused by habitat loss um, and our use of the land. And of course, the other thing is that you know when we think about this um, interplay between climate change and, and habitat loss, you know one of the things that becomes clear is that you know species need to be able to move in order to um, keep up with climate change. They need to be able to move to those cooler areas further further towards the poles and um, towards higher elevations. And so we also need to start thinking about um, you know, making more connected landscapes, so making corridors of natural habitats through which um, species are able to, to move. Um, and, and here in the UK, there's this really nice initiative of, of Bug Life, um, which is a charity that deals with insects broad, in the broadest sense. Um, and you know, they've devised this set of what they call beelines, um, which are places where they propose that, that corridors of natural habitat could be put in place to allow um, insects to move around um, and to prevent some of their declines. So I guess just to finish then, so, you know, I think we're, some of the work that, that we're doing and that others are doing, you know, is really highlighting the steep declines that, that are going on currently in, in animals and plants, in biodiversity in the broadest sense, and particularly in insects um, and including bumblebees. And, you know, we're getting better at understanding what's, what's driving those declines and it seems to be quite a complex complex interplay of of things and and you know climate change and habitat loss seem to be very important and the way that they are um, acting against one another is you know, it's driving much larger declines than we expect if we just look at climate change or we just look at habitat loss alone um, and so I guess that you know it starts to point towards certain solutions that we might put in place in order to reduce those declines um, in the future Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. We do have time for some questions, if there are any. Yeah. Um, my bugbear is something you didn't mention, which is competition from honeybees, um, which is a nice middle-class habit-forming thing. <laughs> So yes, actually, um, in, a, in a very general way, competition between different animals and plants is something that we are not very good at, at capturing in these sorts of pieces of, of research. Um, actually, you know, Richard's done some really nice work trying to understand the, the, how competition might be important in shaping the sorts of things that we see. But, but generally, it's quite difficult to, to capture those sorts of, of things, yeah. But, but yes, it is important. We hear on the news lots of stuff about hives of failures. Have we, do you understand what is happening in a hive failure? Um, so, so this is colony collapse disorder, which is um, this is something that, that honey is happening to honeybees. Um, there, there's a lot. There's another sort of whole area of research into that, and you know, diseases and parasites are very important. And, you know, we suspect that diseases and parasites are also very important in, in driving the sorts of declines that we're seeing in, in wild bees like, like bumblebees. But it's, you know, again, it's not something that we have studied directly yet.
Hi. Um, I wanted to ask you about the role of neonicotinoids. We've heard a lot about them and the damaging effect they've had on insects and was quite relieved when we heard they were being banned a few years back in Europe. Although I, s I read about a study recently that was saying insects were still showing severe health problems even five years after they'd stopped being used because they were surviving in the soil. I mean, how, how important do you think the role of those are and does it partly explain the difference between Europe and North America? Um, yes, they are certainly important. There have been studies that have shown that. Um, we didn't look at neonicotinoids directly in the work that, that we did. It's, it's probably part of that sort of grey area that we were unable to, to explain. Um, yes, I think it's entirely possible that, that that is responsible for some of the differences that we see between North America and, and Europe, yes. Thank you. So I actually have two questions. Uh, my first question was related to, um, you mentioned that in eight years there would be a 58% uh, bumblebee loss. Is that based on current numbers or is that cumulative with the losses that you already mentioned are occurring? Uh, that, that's cumulative. Okay, okay. And my other question was, I was recently reading a paper about how um, the life cycles of bumblebees are basically changing and instead of having one generation per year they're having another generation but there isn't any any research into how that is actually going to influence their populations it, are there ways in which this can be explored through uh, models or um yeah that's that's an interesting question it's not something that we have looked at yet um so it's another one of those things that we are not very good at, at capturing in the in the sorts of work that i do is how species might adapt to changes um and and you know we you know we know that that adaptation can be important um actually what's interesting with with what we've seen with the bumblebees is that there there seems to be relatively little evidence that they have successfully adapted so you know the patterns that we see are consistent with what we'd expect if they have failed to adapt but of course in yeah in in other animals and plants it can be important yeah. hi thank you um in the first map you showed sort of areas where people were reporting um seeing bees and i wondered is this and that sort of increases it went through is this more and more to do with citizen science and things like the great is it the Great British Bee Count that we have once a year here? Like, how important is citizen science and initiatives like that to you understanding what's going on? Um, so, so in a general way, you know, citizen science is is a, um, a huge asset to what we do. Most of, um, yeah, some of what we have what we have is is um, what would be termed citizen science. It's, it's mostly sort of um, semi-professional recorders in this in this case. Um, but but in other studies, you know, citizen science has been, um, you know, immensely important for for understanding changes. Uh, hi. You mentioned that the that the cost of losing bumblebees is in millions of dollars is is quite huge. But uh, what would be the the cost of not using pesticides in or in the crops? It would be I guess that it would pay off, right? The I mean, do you know if do you know the comparison between the the use of no pesticides and the other one? That's a really interesting question. Uh, no, I don't think we have the answer to that. Um, it's a very complicated question because um, you know if we 
If we don't use pesticides, we have more diverse systems, which themselves provide some control of pest populations. Um, but also, of course, if we apply pesticides, we lose pollinators. So it, it's a complicated question, um, and we don't have an answer. I seem to remember reading somewhere that there's seven or eight different species of bumblebee in the UK. Um, are they, are they all, all suffering decline equally, or are some pref preferring different habitats? Sorry. Um, that, that's a really good question. No, um, not everything is declining. Some species will benefit, of course, and, and um, yeah, but, but the average that we see is, is a decline, basically, yeah. Hi, um, thank you for the lecture. I just wanted to ask what I, as a private person, could do to support bumblebees. Is there, are there ways that I can change behavior or buy something less that you know, supports them? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So um, there are lots of things that we can do. You know, there are some very specific things that we know are good for bumblebees, wildflower-rich habitats. And so, you know, buying food that comes from farms that are managed to be better for bumblebees is a great thing to do. Of course, managing your own land if you have any, if you have a garden, you know, managing that um, to have wildflower-rich habitats. You know, one of the possible reasons that that bumblebees are sensitive to drought is that, you know, that causes a loss of wildflowers, basically, which on which they rely. Um, and then, of course, there are the big things, you know, anything that we can do as individuals to reduce the amount of land that is used and to reduce climate change. So those sorts of things that I had on the last slide around um, energy efficiency um, and, and, you know, dietary changes and so on. Hi, um, thank you very much for your talk. And I just have a quick question about, so you know how like this climate change is affecting both like the pollinator species as well as the plants? Could there be this kind of potential like mismatching and would that effect of this kind of phenological mismatching be greater than like climate change on the pollinators themselves or like the effects of habitat loss, for example? Um, yes, that's a, that's a really good question. Yes, that is definitely something that may be um, contributing possibly in a large part to the sorts of changes we see. You know, there, there are a number of reasons why these changes in climate climate might be impacting pollinators and bees, and, and one of those is through yeah, availability of food and plants that they need. Yeah. Hi. Um, will the HS2 roots have any effect on the bumblebees moving around? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, bumblebees... Most bumblebee species don't rely on like ancient woodland of the sort that's um, you know that's going to be destroyed by HS2. Many other species do, of course. Um, yeah, in terms of loss of uh, you know disrupting those connections, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think you know those roads and and railways and things are known to be very important for for mammals, which just can't cross. Um, can't cross them. I'm, yeah, I'm not so sure with insects. I suspect there is some effect, but it's not something that we've looked at. Hi, th thank you. Um, I just wondered if you knew of um, any institution that keeps uh, up-to-date phenological data that the public could access. Um, yeah, that's a good 
question. Can I ask you to email me and I will have a think? I can't off the top of my head think who holds those data, but if you email me, I'll try and dig something out. Uh, so how concerned should we be about any potential decline in other pollinating species like uh, true wasps and especially the European hornet? And could, it, could that European hornet perhaps enjoy legal protection in the UK like it does in Germany? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. We have no reason to think that the sorts of things that we are showing for bumblebees wouldn't apply equally to many other flying insects and, and pollinators. Um, so without much evidence currently, yes, we should be very concerned. I mean, there is evidence that other, you know, other flying insects are declining and showing steep declines. And you know, we suspect they're probably driven by these same sorts of things. And so you know, we expect with more climate change and more habitat loss that, that all, all flying insects groups will probably be in trouble. Is there a contingency plan for the new railway that Boris is building to put corridors in along the side of it? I, I don't know that, I'm sorry. There should be, but I don't know the answer, I'm sorry. All right, we are kind of up against the clock. So um, thank you all for coming and thank you again, Tim, for a really interesting talk.